Cool. We're recording with Brett Cannon. So, Brett, thanks for uh, joining the show. Thanks for having me, Brian. You're involved with Python so much, but it's changed recently. I mean, you you do so much for Python. Um, but are you are you no longer on the steering people? <laughs> I am still on the steering council, but I am serving my last year. So okay. I will be on it until the end of this calendar year, end of 2023. And okay. I'm uh, choosing not to run again because I, when we were setting this all up, I thought we should have term limits and we didn't set them up. And at the time when we were discussing this, I, I said, I thought people should have like five, maybe 10 year term limits. And I'm hitting your, this is my fifth year on the council. So I just I'm flying through with my own promise and thoughts on the topic and stepping down. Okay. Um, is that, how much free time is that going to give you or will it give you any extra free time? Uh, no, it will. Uh, we meet for an hour and a half every week plus homework, plus having to keep up with conversations and stuff in that regard versus maybe getting to be a bit more blase about certain topics. Like, yeah, I really don't have to care because that's not going to come onto my plate. I don't need to express an opinion kind of thing. Uh, so no, it'll definitely free up a couple hours a week. Cool. One of the re reasons why I'm, I'm really excited to have you on the show is because of the focus on community. And uh, you've been a big part of the Python community for me and for a lot of people. Oh, thanks. But um, there's this quote that I think came from you. Is that, mm -hmm. is the, uh, it came for the language, stayed for the community. Is that about it? Is that from you? Yeah, so the story behind that quote was I came up with it spontaneously on stage at PyCon when it was held in Montreal, Quebec. Uh, I was asked, uh, Diana Clark asked me to do the opening uh, remarks for the conference. You know, the whole, we have a code of conduct, abide by it, here's what's happening over the next couple of days kind of opener. Yeah. Um, she just didn't want to do it. So she asked me if I was willing to as a fellow Canadian. So I said, sure. So I did it and I ended with 10 minutes left to spare. So I took that opportunity to thank the community for everything they do and everything. And I wrote that quote on the spot. I have actually subsequently found out Fernando Perez uh, also apparently had a similar quote at some point in some talk somewhere. Um, okay. But I didn't know about it at the time. He told me later on, years later, like, oh, by the way, I happen to have actually said something somewhere like in 90, like, I can't remember what year. And he said, but totally it's it's your thing you came up with on your own i love the fact that people have latched onto that uh comment so but yeah no i came up with it um yeah randomly on the spot and thank goodness it turned out to be a good quote because that's, that's when everyone keeps quoting and not some of my stupid quotes i may have come up with over the years the so this was this was not that long ago maybe six years ago or something or uh when was quebec, quebec. Quebec would have been was Quebec just before Portland. I don't so, remember. I jumped on in Portland, so yeah. So I think I think Quebec was before Portland, and Portland was uh, seventeen. So would this have been thirteen, fourteen? So about okay, a decade so it's, ago, it's about maybe a little less. Okay, yeah. But you you were already like well in the community. You're you were part of the community. So is that yeah. like true? Was that quote? that sort of a, an idea true for you did you do you think you came for the language and stayed for the community or is that just what you observe other people do no no it's totally true for me so i got involved with python i learned python uh the fall of 2000 and then i subscribed to the python dev mailing list in june of 2002 uh and then i made my first commit april 18th 2003 as a core developer and so at that point, I'd already been involved for a decade. Uh, and I already uh, had been, I'd already made a big contribution, right? Like at that point, I'd already done import lib and the whole import thing. So I'd already had that big thing I'm known for code-wise done. I had already finished my PhD at that point and I was working. So I was already past the whole tons of free time to actually contribute as much as I used to, right? Because as a grad student, I had plenty of free time. So I was able to kind of finagle some of my research back into Python and do school assignments around Python and all that stuff and just flat out having more free time. So at that point, I'd already gotten to the point where what I was getting out 
from the language itself wasn't the technical learnings like I was when I first joined, right? Because when I first joined, there was a lot of just like how to develop code, how to work in a team, all this, all the things you talk about when you, that you learn when you join an open source project and get involved had already happened for me. I had already done all that. So at that point, the reason I was sticking around was honestly for the people. And it still continues to be true to this day, right? Like I'm motivated to try to make Python better because A, it helps the people who I've come to consider friends uh, lives better. And also just the general world out there in terms of people in the community, the scientists and stuff who are trying to fight climate change or make massive discoveries in physics or all these people who are doing like good work, right? Just with this and not just for money, although that's totally fine too, because Lord knows I got to get paid too and pay my bills. Um, but just that kind of stuff, right? It's, it really is for me about the community at this point, because it's not, it's not as much about the technical learnings as much as it is about just effectively helping people out. Well, you also, um, you do help a lot of people out and you also give a lot of time, uh, give your own time to people like me on podcasts and stuff, but you also, so you, one of the, I want to, I guess I'll point people to a couple other podcasts. Uh, you were on the changelog recently, mm-hmm. um, and that was an excellent uh, discussion. Um, and they kind of you discuss some of your past there too. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there was some other. I, I wish I I would have looked this up. I should have wrote it down. You were on something else recently too, weren't you? Uh, oh, I was on um, uh, Django Talk. That's it. Yeah, the Django chat. Um, yeah, Django chat. Sorry. Um, that was actually I really. I, I guess I, I would I'd encourage people to go uh, listen to both the changelog interview with you and the Django chat. Uh, those were really great. I, I thought they were great discussions. Um, um, and uh, I guess I, I think I've shared this before, but I'm going to share a story. Um, I knew you as like one of the Python gods, essentially, <laughs> when I came in, uh, when I started paying attention to the community. So I've been using Python since like 2000-ish, maybe 2001, 2002, but I didn't really jump into the community too much until I started getting involved with uh, the podcasting and stuff and blogging. I guess blogging gave it a start, but that was more like 2010, 2011 or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, but and then I started doing public speaking, trying my hand at it. And my first PyCon that I spoke at, I was nervous as get it all get out and it didn't go as planned and i don't think it went that well that was but, one with paul right well supposedly with paul but he didn't show up and <laughs> was supposed to be yeah paul everett and myself and uh and about an hour before he said uh yeah you were gonna do the talk and i was gonna do the demo but you're just doing it all right now because i didn't have time to practice the demo <laughs> and i'm like it's all good but it's probably not gonna go well and uh, you know excuses technical issues and whatever trying to switch just like i was flustered with just trying to switch between like the console and the and the everything and the the um oh it's doing pycharm uh the pycharm window and the and the slides going back and forth that didn't work that well and then also the re- resolution of the pycharm was so awful on the screen that it couldn't see anything um but oh well i should have put it all in slides instead um Lessons anyway, learned. uh, I got off and like, and then later I, 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 uh, attended a talk, uh, uh that you gave, you gave like, a, a one of the closing keynotes or I don't know, one of the keynotes, um, where you're talking about, um, I think you were talking about burnout or something. Yeah. Um, so that would have been Cleveland then when I was giving one of the opening keynotes, I think on a, one of the, like Saturday about, um, contributions to open source and yeah, yeah it, it focused around burnout yeah. just how to treat each other nicely to actually keep this whole open source thing going yeah well i just love the talk so i stuck around to try to just say hey i like the talk and you walked up to me and said hey brian and i was like oh my god brett knows my name <laughs> uh, and then also you gave me positive feedback on the talk even though i know it was a crash and burn um but that encouragement of um, 
just encouraging people to speak, uh, public speak, because that's something that we're not as nerds. A lot of us aren't used to doing. So I guess thanks for uh, for lying to me and telling me it was a good talk. No, I mean, actually, I do remember that because I think we ran into each other Sunday during the poster session the next day, if I remember correctly. I think so. Yeah. Uh, so I actually do remember that. Um, yeah, I mean, I've been there, right? Like, I've been lucky enough to have spoken at PyCon US many times um and i've had talks rejected just to be clear i do not always get my talks in regardless of who people think i am so uh fyi never feel bad if you get a talk rejected um but i have had that stage fright and the problems and all that and i've lived through it and it's one of those things where it takes time right it took me years to deal with the bulk of my stage fright when talking in a room and i still get it right like Effectively, unless I've given the talk at least once already publicly, I have I, I'm nervous up there. It might not always come through, but as a good example, for instance, I gave a talk at Pi Cascades this year and I was nervous um, and I don't know if it shows through. I hope it didn't, but it's one of those you never quite know how the timing's going to go or is slide going to make sense or just kind of where things might trip up. And it's just. The, the demo gods might not play in your favor and same thing with the talk gods and whatever. And I mean, the only yeah. time I didn't feel nervous giving that talk was when I gave it at PyCon US because I'd already given the talk live. I already knew what slides I tripped up on and what slides people didn't find um, clear enough. And I'd already gotten feedback from that talk from many people. Thank you to those who gave that to me as well. And I just know that it's also really hard to know objectively while you've given a talk what went well and what didn't, right? Because it's another one of these things where I've given talks where I feel like every little joke I made landed flat. And then afterwards, <laughs> I have people come up and say, oh, that was so funny. It's like, really? I No one Nobody seemed to laugh. Exactly, right? And it's one of those <laughs> things where you think, oh, that talk must have gone over horribly. And everyone goes like, no, no, I loved it. Or what have you. And so I also just realized that, I mean, giving feedback is just something... That's just helpful. And it's a small, small gesture. And it's a small thing. And you don't have to be rude about it when you do it. But everyone, I think, typically wants to improve and do better. And as long as you can deliver that feedback in a constructive, caring way, it's helpful. And so I ran yeah. into you and it just like, hey, I you said at the start of your talk, this is your first talk. It's like, well, I've been there and I know feedback is important and it's hard to get. And so I wanted to offer that to you and give it to you and just like, good, huh. good going, good it's hard enough just to get up on that stage. Like that's hell submitting a talk to be accepted is step one. Step two is getting to the conference and giving it. And then step three is just learning from the experience. So you can repeat again next year. So that's awesome. Um, the, uh, I want to talk about a bunch of other stuff, but I, uh, I think it's a cool time to throw in, uh, some, some tips about public speaking that I've learned over the last few years, handful mm -hmm. of years. Um, yeah that I've learned from other people from Hinnick. Uh, he's given some great advice. The advice I got from Hinnick really was practice it a lot. Like that, mm -hmm. just practice your talk a lot, like the whole thing out loud, standing up. Um, and, uh, and so, I, and then also, uh, give it to several people. So like, I think Pike my talk at Pike Cascades, uh, I talked there also, it was probably the best time I've ever had. And I think it went really well because I'd given it publicly four, three times already. Oh, nice. And, and it did go well, by the way. And I practiced it like a hundred times. I just, it was a short talk and I just, I'm like, it's worth it. I'm just going to practice it a lot. Um, and I probably practiced it even like five times that day in the morning. Um, so mm -hmm. anyway, um, and that's not, and also the other thing, uh, the other advice I got from somebody was, you don't have to come up with a new talk for every conference. Mm -hmm. You can, you can, you get, get a good idea and give it locally, maybe at a local meetup. And then if it goes well, submit it this pretty much the same talk to PyCon. Why not? Um, so I'd tweak it maybe, but yeah. And to back up both of those points, um, I can't remember their name, but the author of the blog, wait, but why? Uh, gave a TED talk once and effectively said what you said, like his whole talk was about how to give talks and kind of how he screwed up his talk and changed it last minute. But um, 
very much about the repetitiveness of it really helps with your cadence and your pacing and really helps just deal with the nerves. Cause at that point it's a recital, right? It's yeah. you, because otherwise the nervousness typically comes from where am I going to mess up? But if you've more or less memorized it, like it's a one person play that goes yeah. away because at that point you're just literally just repeating the words you've memorized at a certain pace and tone, but that's it. There's no, Oh, is this going to work or not? Is this, am I going to make my time? It's like, you've literally practiced it so much those nerves go away. So if you can do that, that's obviously fantastic about giving it to multiple audiences too. I remember when PyCon US actually had to switch to telling people, Hey, sorry, we couldn't have uh, accept your talk, but do give it to smaller, give it somewhere else. And I do think that actually works really well for the nerv nervousness to go from a small audience to the bigger audiences, right? As you said, like, give it to your friends, give it to your coworkers, right? So giving at work, giving it to your local meetup group or whatever, giving it then at your regional Python conference, and then going to one of the big international ones like EuroPython or PyCon US and yeah. kind of working your way up such that you've had that practice, but also giving it to smaller audiences. So everyone benefits. And honestly, most of those conferences are totally happy to take talks you've given previously because they were at a smaller audience. It'd probably be a little different if you went from PyCon US down to your regional, because there's a much bigger chance people have seen that video. But going yeah. small up, I've historically not found conferences having a problem with having you give a talk you've already given somewhere else. Yeah. Um, anyway, it's I think it's fun. And I also yeah. I think it's fun to give a talk. And also it's a it's a it's a growing experience. The other, th yeah. okay. The, the last bit was when I first started talking, I thought I'm never going to get asked again. So I'm going to try to <laughs> instill every bit of information that I know. Yeah. That's not, that's, that's not a good strategy. Um, fo no. Focus is a uh, focus on something small and narrow is way easier. And then the last bit for me, at least is don't do demos. Um, <laughs> um the one thing I I'll add to this is um, try to stay calm by believing that you are the expert at your talk. That helped a lot for me is I would always go into these talks going, oh, man, or oh, geez. Um, is someone going to trip me up in the Q&A or something like that, which is why I always loved it when podcast uh did away with Q&As, public Q&As, and you got private Q&As. But I basically started to go into talks going like, well, okay. I'm the one giving this talk. No one knows the content of this talk as well as I do, because literally no one else wrote this talk. So I know what's in it and what's not. And it's always okay to say you don't know, because guess what? Chances are the vast majority of people in that room don't know. And even if someone comes up in the Q&A and gives the answer kind of Q&A where they're just seeming to kind of just boast or trip you up, which thankfully doesn't happen too much, you can always just go, oh, okay, thanks. Or I didn't know that. Or let's talk afterwards, right? It's always okay. Yeah. It's okay to show your ignorance or your lack of knowledge. It, it's just we all have lack of knowledge. There's always some gap. You're not expected to be perfect, so it's okay to do that. And when you and I found for myself at least, it took a lot of stress off when because then I don't feel like oh my oh did I prepare enough? Do I know enough? Am I going to handle the questions? Like no, probably not. But that's fine. It's not a big deal. So that helped me a lot. It's also okay to get feedback and learn. Oh yeah. After a talk like that. So my uh, talk at by Cascades, it, it was a, like filmed that one. And so that then then other people got to watch it. And uh, I got contacted by the talk, one of the talks maintainers and said I had a problem with the talks configuration. <laughs> and I'm like, thanks. <laughs> Not a problem. Just like something in talks three, you had to say uh, you had to specify that it was like a, a different kind of build to do a pie project. Thomas build. Mm. Um, but I can't remember the keyword now, but it's not necessary in talks four. I'm like, oh, okay, cool. I didn't know that. Uh, yeah, so. I had the same thing with my podcast case talk. Uh, I got a bunch of feedback from people afterwards because my my talk was on Python syntactic sugar. And I said, oh, I don't think I can un I can get rid of this syntax. And then people come up to me and say, actually, I think you can. And they gave me some ideas. Then I went back, was actually able to write more blog posts on that whole series and then tweak it and then have a even better talk at PyCon US because I was able to, have even more of the problem solved and be a little bit more prepped. So yeah, paid off. And then bringing those skills back to work, I mm -hmm. like don't worry at all about speaking in public at work. I oh, used wow. to like even yeah. like 10 people or something, I'd get, I'd be nervous to get up and talk in front of a, a meeting room. And now it's like, if I can talk in front of uh, a couple, a 
few hundred people at a conference than talking it to 10 people is no big deal at all. Um, yep. So. yep, exactly. Like when you've talked in front of an audience of thousands, like you easily can at PyCon, talking in the middle of a meeting to some people, you really <laughs> stop stressing. Like, I, yeah, yeah. I, used, I used to be one of those guys that would like, uh, uh, I have no problem taking over a meeting from the sidelines to stand up and like, oh, that's wrong. And then, you know, go around and I wasn't that bad. But, uh, <laughs> but if I'm the one actually starting the meeting or the, the discussion, I would be nervous for some reason, but that's all gone now. Yeah. So I think that's one of the benefits of uh, trying to do a public speaking is because private speaking is that much easier. Um, but yeah. anyway, um, on a different note, um, I don't know. So there's a lot of history of like how you got into Python and stuff. And that's why mm -hmm. I, one of the reasons why I'm going to point people to those other podcasts, because you cover that. Uh, and if people don't know it already, plus they're interesting questions. But um, what do you do? Like uh, you live up in Canada and stuff uh, like. Uh, I can't remember why you're in Canada. You, were you born there or? Yeah. yeah. So I was actually born here um, in, in Vancouver. And, uh, I was born to American parents and then, uh, before I turned about one, we moved back down into, down to Washington state, uh, Bellevue, Washington, technically. And then I basically grew up between, uh, I was in Washington state for a while. And then, uh, as a kid, and then we moved down to various suburbs of Los Angeles, uh, all the way through junior college. I went to Pasadena city college. Um, and then, yeah, and then Bay Area for my bachelor's at Berkeley and then uh, Central Coast of California, where I went to Cabo San Luis Obispo for my master's and then back to Canada for my PhD because uh, my supervisor at Cal Poly uh, had suggested, oh, why don't you try applying to Canadian schools? I know you're Canadian. And I'm like, yeah, okay, sure. Sure, why not? I'll give it a shot. So I did. And lo and behold, I got in and it turned out actually a friend of his from his PhD days was a prof at UBC and uh, actually became my uh, PhD supervisor. And then I met oh. my wife while I was here. Uh, we tried to move back down to the States for a bit when I got my uh, job at Google, but uh, US immigration decided to lose her paperwork. And we, oh, no. at that point, yeah, and the green card application we did required her to stay here. So we did that and we'd been there separated right after getting married for like, five six months and we're just like why are we doing this to ourselves we're both canadian we don't need to do any weird immigration yeah. stuff so google had a office in uh kitchener ontario so we just moved out there for four years and then decided no we want the west coast lifestyle and that meant moving to vancouver so moved out here and that's when i also started microsoft okay um i didn't know google didn't i would assume would have assumed google had something in vancouver also but no, uh, it never happened. They came up and looked, um, but didn't decided not to. Most honestly, back then, uh, I left Google in 2015. Back then, a lot of the offices were due to acquisition, and they just never acquired a Vancouver company. So it just didn't happen. And Google didn't do remote back then, except in very extraneous circumstances, and I did not qualify as extraneous for that. So <laughs> I had to leave when I moved out here. So... Um Okay, so you're you're coding a lot. You're helping out. Um, mm -hmm. You live in Canada, so my uh, and it, I'm gonna have to be respectful because my uh, I grew up in the '80s. So Bob and Doug McKenzie just pops into my head whenever <laughs> I think about Canada. <laughs> um, I still don't know what back bacon is, uh, but oh, Canadian um, bacon is that what is that the same? Same thing. Know. Okay, everyone oh, that's just. just Back bacon's Canadian bacon. It just depends on where you are, whether they bother to label it Canadian or back bacon. Huh? Do, what are the? Is that like the, the the egg McMuffin at McDonald's has got back back bacon on it in Canada? Um, uh, I honestly don't know. I mean, obviously, <laughs> it's what you typically end up with on your pizza. But um, oh, that guy. Okay, got it. Yeah. Uh, no, I don't eat red meat anymore, so that's it's not an issue. But um, anyway. Uh, and I also don't really know what a toucan, but it's a beanie. Really? Yep. Is that something that's common in Canada or just a joke in the 80s? 
No, no. We all, for those of you who don't know, Canada's um, north, as it were. Um, and even the, so funny enough, a large proportion of the Canadian population actually lives below the 49th parallel because so much of the Canadian population lives in the greater Toronto area, which is actually parallel to about Portland, I think, roughly, maybe Salem. So it's actually surprisingly far south, but it gets frigid out there. And even so Vancouver and um, Victoria, BC, which is the capital of British Columbia, uh, BC, uh, we have like some of the mildest weather in terms of winters and it still gets below zero, right? And our, our highs and lows in winter before climate change were typically like lows of two and highs of five in the winter. Um, and so just everyone... Oh, the vast majority of people just have toques or beanies just to keep your head warm because it's just perpetually cold in the winter. So it's okay. just, everyone's got a hat. I even had to look that up. I didn't really know what a beanie was. It's a knitted, um, it's a knitted cap. Just a, just a stock cap. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It's nothing fancy. It's just we happen to have our own term for it compared to <laughs> you all down south. Just like we, <laughs> just like like nationally, we call it pop. But down down south in the U.S., you all have different terms based on what region you live in, whether you call it soda, soda pop, Coke, right? Like in the south. Yeah. And even well, if it's Pepsi, you still call it any dark, any dark pop, you just call Coke, right? It's just, we've naturally just decided pop is the term. You sometimes see soda pop, but it's typically just pop. Well, that's what, kind of what I grew up with. And I, so I grew up in the eastern eastern Washington, and I think so, or pop was common then time but mm-hmm. um there was a place called pop shop that would uh yeah. you could take your your bottles back to uh, or something i think i think uh, pop shop's actually now the name of an actual um pop making company up here at least huh. anyway uh um but okay so you it, the temperatures are pretty mild ish they're probably similar to portland not a little colder probably um it's pretty darn close uh like when we've all had the massive heat waves, actually Portland's typically been hotter than we are um, yeah. by a degree. I'm talking Celsius, but by a degree or two, um, like when there's snow, I think typically there's a good chance at least Seattle will end up with snow as well. Whether or not Portland's going to get hit quite the same, I don't know, but yeah, it's, yeah. it's pretty mild. Um, so what do you, what do you do in your free time? Um, other than code, uh, more coding, more coding. Um, yeah, I mean, that's that's the problem with uh, open source is when it becomes a habit, it ends up becoming your hobby. Um, a habit, actually, my wife Andrea and I picked up over the pandemic was during the spring and summer months when it stays light out because, once again, uh, Vancouver is near the 49th parallel. So in uh, summer, at its peak, like sunset, it's past uh 21 30 so we're talking like daylight past uh 10 p.m or 2200 so you easily go out for a a walk at night at any point and still have plenty of light to get around so we got into the habit of almost every day after work driving to a different park in town um and then parking the car by the park and just wandering the neighborhood for like an hour or so trying to get in at least three kilometers which is roughly two miles of walking every day nice. and then we're very lucky uh living here because um vancouver's across the water from north vancouver and west vancouver uh whose names are a little wonky when you think about the fact that west vancouver is west of north vancouver there's there's no south vancouver and east vancouver is just a labeled neighborhood of vancouver itself Anyway. Oh, no, North Vancouver and West Vancouver are different towns? Yes. So okay. if you ever come to Vancouver, we have a bridge called Lionsgate Bridge, um, which actually Lionsgate uh, Film, uh, the production company, is actually named after that bridge. Uh, so when you go across Lionsgate Bridge, everything west of that bridge is West Vancouver, and everything east of that bridge is North Vancouver. But oh, it's even worse too, because North Vancouver, there's the district of North Vancouver and the city of Vancouver, which are two different things. Although you ask locals who do not live in North Vancouver and it's just North Vancouver. No one cares about that technical, political, bureaucratic difference, but it obviously matters when you live over there based on what services you get and who provides it and all that stuff. But mm. yeah, there's little weird things. 
Um, but yeah. yeah, we're really lucky because we're right up against the mountains here. So we have great hiking trails as well. So it's easy to go for hikes over North Van and West Van. We've got plenty of parks here being, being Pacific Northwest, lots of trees and stuff. So yeah, I mean, going for walks is the default thing to do when we just want to get outside and just go do something. Any skiing or snowboarding? I skied when I was a kid uh, up until roughly my father broke a bone in his arm when we were skiing once. And so he stopped skiing. So it demotivated him to want to take us skiing. Cause this was back when I lived in LA. So we had to go up to the San Bernardino mountains, which was like two, two and a half hour drive away to get to yeah. the snow. And it was never great snow. It was a fine, it was, I mean, it was Los Angeles, right? So there was at least snow. Um, so I did ski as a kid, but funny enough, when I moved here, since I moved, back here for my PhD back in 2000. I think I've only gone skiing once. Uh, I will admit though, we have started to try to get do snowshoeing during the winter here because that's oh. easy to drive to. Doesn't require coordinating ski rental equipment for anyone, anything like that. There's less risk of anyone breaking anything and it's still a great workout and you get to enjoy the scenery as you're going for the walk. So huh. a bit more of that. Cool. Yeah. Uh, uh Every year Costco gets in, gets them in, and I'm like, how many people in Portland really need snowshoes? But I mean, we have Mount Hood, but you know. Yeah, I mean, we're kind of lucky here, right? Because we have multiple mountains with multiple ski resorts, and the ski almost all the ski resorts have a snowshoe trail somewhere. Really? Yeah, what? like you can go to, um, like if you go to Mount Seymour over here, they have uh, actually multiple trails, which is great. Uh, Cypress has a couple. So there are just multiple places you can go to very easily. And they're all reachable by public transit or by a bus from the um, ski resort. So getting up there is real, real easy. Yeah. And once again, I, it's I, pretty cheap. I so. really enjoyed uh, cross-country skiing the, the one time I did it, probably mm -hmm. 20 years ago. Uh, anyway. Um, now, the other thing <laughs> that I wanted to ask you about, I guess uh, you, you've, you're to Degrees in philosophy, right? My bachelor's is in philosophy and my master's and my PhD are in computer science. Okay. Um, does Do you think that the philosophy affected your career or your attitude towards open source or anything? Or is that just completely separate? Um, it's a good question. It's, I mean, it definitely helped just because you have to learn how to think logically, right? Like, I, when I told people I was getting, I, when I was getting my bachelor's of philosophy, people were asking, well, what are you going to do with that? I was like, oh, I'm going to grad school in computer, in computer science. Like, where's the connection? Like, <laughs> well, symbolic logic. I mean, this is back when people barely knew what software was, right? Yeah. Uh, back in the early 2000s. So it was one of these things where, yeah, symbolic logic alone and just having to think logically about large systems and, and thinking large systems and breaking them down into smaller constituent parts, right? Or thinking about little little constituent parts of something of a thing and then building up a larger argument, right? It all kind of plays into software, right? Whether you're trying to take the big problem you're trying to solve and breaking it down into the functions, the classes and whatever you want to do to solve it, or what are the tools I have available to me? Um, and having that spark of inspiration, like, Oh, you know, if I plug all this together, it allows me to do this thing and have this bigger outcome. So it definitely helped with that. Um, I, 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 I don't get how that, how that's part of philosophy at all. Maybe I, I just don't have enough philosophy background. Well, so the thing about philosophy, right, is kind of the way to think about philosophy is philosophy is anything that isn't that isn't in the sciences because it's not solved yet, right? So it varies um, from obviously mm. ethics and metaphysics and epistemology, but political science, uh, political philosophy as well, and other things where it's just like we don't have a known answer to it and. So ends up in philosophy. I mean, this is why scientists were originally called philosophers. And the deal that. is, is you kind of have to tackle philosophy depending on what you're trying to tackle from different angles, right? Like if you're trying to prove the existence of God, like to take a big dramatic example, well, how do you do that? Well, you got to work backwards, right? You got to work down to smaller and smaller stuff. So like, um, I believe it was, uh, see Thomas Aquinas, for instance, has a famous um, set of steps where he logically says, okay, well, if you believe, if, if you take this to be true, and then this is true, and this is true, and this is true, blah, 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 uh, 
proves blank, right? And the, literally his was the proof of the existence of God, although I believe one or two of his things is like, it's a little, you could argue whether that statement's true or false, and that's where his whole logic breaks down, but otherwise is the logical statements you just can't argue with. So from that perspective, right, that's that's going like, how do I make this happen? And breaking down into smaller parts. And the other part is just the usual, just sitting there, just contemplating the world and just thinking about it and just realizing, oh, well, you know, with this thing and this thing, well, this suddenly leads to this outcome, right? And just, once again, taking we could come off as disparate parts of something and then just kind of tying them together in a unique way to have a epiphany or a realization that suddenly this opens up a new um, thing. Right. So versus the, I I'm trying to prove this work my way down. It's more of this, Oh, Hey, I have these things in the world that I know to be true or I believe to be true. What does that open up for me? What does that say about the world? And just kind of going that way. And that's kind of the whole, Oh, you know, I could totally use the software in an interesting way. And, create a new project or a new product, or, you know what, mm. I totally could make something like, I could do something with this. I'm going to go play with this. And then you kind of have some epiphany about some new, new thing. That's one of the things that actually you, uh, you talking about that made me think, um, one of the things I think is really important in software teams is to, uh, give people enough time to, to, because they're thinking about the software while they're writing it and mm -hmm. afterwards and in their free time and whatever, mm -hmm. but allowing them enough time, extra time to do something with that thinking, um, to mm -hmm. whether it's it taking those ideas and building something bigger or taking those ideas and redoing it, refactoring and going, you know what, now that we've already gotten through this whole thing, I don't think I would do it that way again. And I'd like to redo it. So I'm proud of it. Um, yeah. And I think that's really that, doing something with the thing think, we think about these problems and sometimes the way we think about them is doing the program writing it, one way at least um yeah so i will say the way I, I approach this at work is i tell uh people on the team um you're probably gonna have to re rewrite this three times before you're happy with it right the first time it's going to be functional but it's going to suck but it's going to work the second time you're going to learn your lessons and you're probably going to over-engineer the thing thinking you need to make up for the mistakes you made in your first one. And so then it's going to be a little harder to potentially maintain. And then the third time you're going to finally realize, okay, this is where I need to trim back. And you're going to end up with the solution where you're not pre prematurely optimizing for some unknown use case or whatever. And you've got the experience, you know exactly what you want. Um, I will say the other thing is, is um, so for the VS Code team, that I'm on at work, uh, we actually dedicate uh, one week out of every monthly iteration plan to technical debt, which is how we're able to make sure everyone at work gets that chance to do that refactoring, to fix that API, to do that thing, to make their lives better as a developer. Um, and it's it's a massive win, like literally giving everyone 25% of their work time to do nothing but just improve the quality of the things they work with to just make their lives better as developers is a game changer. And it's totally worth it. It pays for itself over and over and over again. Because otherwise that you're sounds... just stuck having to li live with that. It works, but it sucks first version. You don't get a chance yeah. to fix things. Well, uh, getting 25% of your time to just go off and just do whatever. You're not being told what to do. You're just told to make your life better. So you're happy to come to work every day. Really, really makes a difference. And have you had any pushback from engineers? No. Why would the engineers be upset? They get more time to fix all the things that are bugging them every day, right? Like literally, it's, it's one of these things where I tell people like, look, go fix that bug that's been bothering you that we just haven't been prioritizing for whatever reason. Go fix that API that's been driving oh, you that's yeah. innocent well design. Go automate some part of our workflow that you've just find too laborious to deal with. Like it's literally a week, a week a month to just go and improve your life as a developer. So it, honestly, if that doesn't fit your ethos, this is not the team for you probably. Um, but no, I've never had anyone push back. The worst I've ever had is people going like, "Well, I don't know what to work on." It's like. Oh, I bet you do. You just, you're just, you're just overthinking this, right? Like, let's, like, let's, let's talk this out, right? Like, once again, is there some bug that's been bugging you a bit lately? That you just haven't gotten to? Oh, yeah. Well, there's this one. Well, there you go. Just go fix that, right? It's like, yeah. There's always, there's like a bug that, like, to me is important because it's breaking one of my regression tests. Mm -hmm. But go nobody the really tests. cares. Nobody really cares about it. 
or something. Um, I constantly tell the team, like, go fix tests, right? Like, literally, yeah. I'm sure there's some tests that are a bit too brittle that occasionally, like, we did that for a while. I was like, see, I got a little too flaky. It's like, you know what? Just spend dough. We just go fix tests. Go make them better. Make them less flaky. Make them less flaky. Like, literally, just whatever you need to do to make your life as a developer better, this is the week to do it. And you get it every month. So it also means you don't have to stress, like, oh, man, I, I don't get this one week a year. What am I going to do? It's like, no, no. Whatever you don't finish, just carry it over the next month and you'll just get keep working on it. Oh, go go nice. add new linting rules and make the linter pass. It could be <laughs> yeah. really simple stuff. Like we introduced um ESLint. We had a we had to add a we had to use a um block list to block files from getting linted because they just didn't pass yet. But we want to make sure at least all new code met it. Well, thing to do during debt week take a file off the block list, see what fails, fix it to pass the lint and then move on. Like there's a whole bunch of stuff you can do. The, the interesting thing uh, to me is the, um, uh, cause I, I like to write also. So, mm -hmm. uh, um, with writing the first draft is never going to, we always call it the first draft. That's what we call it. Yep. We, we, we don't treat software like a first draft or a lot of people don't. Um, and I think they should more. Oh yeah. I, even though it's coming up a lot. I mean, I can't remember who it was, whether somebody said like first make, you know, first make it work, then make it fast or mm -hmm. something, something like that. Yeah. Um, uh, but, um, and what the, what that means is rewrite it, uh, possibly. Yeah. And it doesn't take as long. And, and one of the things that people, some people I've uh, come across have said, well, it took me a month to write that. I don't want to spend another month. It's not going to take you a month to rewrite it. You already know all the lessons. Yeah. It's going it, to, and you, and you don't have to do it in one hole. You don't have to throw everything away, but you can go, maybe it's not completely broken, but you can just change some stuff. But that's where tests help. You, you, you know, make it functional, write some tests around it, and then, uh, then you can refactor. Yeah. I mean, tests uh, can be very freeing that way, right? It's the, yeah. It, it, it's about feeling confident that your code is still shippable. And that's why I tell the team, right? Is you should write tests such that uh, if I hit the release button today, as long as CRI is green, you're cool with that. And you're not going to be sweating bullets. Like you're not going to be stressed <laughs> that I am shipping your code today because CI passed, right? Like yeah. if you are, you didn't write enough tests. So go write some more tests. Well, I want to hear about your fountain pen. <laughs> because yeah. I just got a new pen recently too, but it's not a fountain pen. So, uh, it, okay. So fountain pen. Yeah. Yeah. So... I think it was when I graduated from my master's degree. Uh, my dad bought me my f first fountain pen. It's a Waterman. And uh, I never had a fountain pen. It was one of these things where, like, growing up as a kid, you never give anything that nice. And because you're going to lose it or break it or whatever. And that, that totally made sense. But I had finally gotten old enough where uh, actually when I graduated high school, I got a nice ballpoint pen with my name engraved on it. And that was great. And then uh, subsequently, I got a fountain pen. And I had never experienced such a nice, smooth writing experience as I did with that pen. And okay. uh, the feel of a fountain pen is fantastic. The pro And honestly, just thinking about the mechanics of it has always just been fascinating to me because they're simple. They've been around for centuries like this is not a modern invention it's not like one of those fisher pens that's pressurized so that you can write upside down right um so it, the mechanism of just like literally the physics of just how the ink just gets drawn in because of the capillary the capillary effect and all that and ends up with the nib and then you just write and it just gets pulled off and just keeps just pulling in it's just it's one of those appreciations of the simple things as it were because we all work in crazy complicated technology right yeah. i think you meet people like in tech all the time who like have these little hobbies or appreciations for these for the design of things that are way simple from the before times as it were before computers there's like how did people solve these problems without just using software to do it all and so i had that and i got another fountain pen later on and i just basically started to miss having a fountain pen but fountain pens you don't keep all over the house, right? Like, I don't know about you, but like pretty much in every room where there's a potential need to write something down, we have a thing of pens, right? You just grab the pen in the house and you start writing, right? I, I mean, this was like growing up too, but my mom was a uh, school teacher. So 
once again, just got used to having pens around the house. And, but I always missed getting to write with a fountain pen because you get the, you inevitably you'll grab that cheap pen and just writes poorly. It's like, is it yeah. out of ink or something? It's not very smooth. The writing experience is like, eh, fine. It's good enough for that quick little list, whatever. And I just got tired of not having one in my office because my fountain pen I keep by my bedside table for writing my gratitude journal uh, to de-stress uh, at the end of the day. Um, although, uh, gratitude journal is not a daily thing. It's a two, time, two, three, two three times a week. Um, but I had kept it by my bedside table to have that nice experience. And so I just got very frustrated not having a pen by my desk. But I also realized at my desk, I don't write that regularly. And the other fountain pen I had, uh, the second one I got, kept drying up because that's, as I said, the, the, the drawbacks of fountain pens is the maintenance. Um, yeah. Because they're using actual ink, uh, they do dry out, right? It's not like in a sealed compartment as much. And I, you can get cartridges too, but they will also dry out, especially if they dry out in the nib because you don't, didn't store yeah. them appropriately. And flushing them out is such a pain, right? You have to run yeah. them under the tap, get all the ink out, shake it all out. And then once again, that water gets really in there and it takes forever to get it all out. And you want to get it out because otherwise it waters down the ink when you do refill it, et cetera, et cetera. So I said, you know what? Forget it. This is annoying. And so I went down to the Vancouver pen shop. They're literally named the Vancouver pen shop um, before they moved locations. And I went in and was like, I want a second fountain pen. Uh, for the, or the third in this case. I'm just like, what do you got? Here's my problem. My pen, this, this is going to be the pen for the room where I'm too lazy to go to my bedroom to go get that other pen every time I need to write, but I don't write constantly. So I need something to last. And it's like, well, we have some nice fountain pens uh, that are guaranteed not to have the ink dry out in them for a year. I what? Thought, yeah. And it's like, oh, wow, that's nice. Like, they're a bit pricey. Like, well, let's see how they write. And they wrote beautifully. And it's just like, yeah, okay. I'm not going to make an impulse buy, right? Just, I'm going to step away. Because uh, it was a couple hundred Canadian dollars. And it's like, okay. And then I kept thinking about it. And then I just kept mentioning it every so often. Like, I wonder if I should have bought that pen before they moved locations when it was on sale. And I kept thinking, I kept thinking. And then finally one day, Andrew just went, you keep saying, you, re you keep thinking about whether you should have bought that pen. Just go buy the pen. Yeah. So that day we literally went down and we bought the pen. So I now have a platinum 1919 pen from Japan that has a guarantee that the ink in it, because it's got a screw cap and such, and it's a tight seal, will not have the ink in it dry out for uh, if for a year's time if I don't use it. So right now my, my, my biggest problem is you have to store it upside down. So when I do need to write something, I have to turn it pointing down and shake the ink down into the nib, but that's it. And it just writes very nicely and fluidly and... The last I haven't written with a fountain pen for a long time, um, uh, and I think I let mine dry out too much, and I couldn't save it. Yeah. I think I still have it around somewhere, but um, it had the little cartridge thing go in. Mm -hmm. But I, you do have to write a little different, right? I mean, or at least I I felt I was writing a little different when I was writing with the fountain. Are pen. you a Maybe lefty? Just, no. Okay, I know lefties have a problem with them because the ink does not dry quickly enough for them to not smear the heck out of it. Um, not, I, I honestly don't. Uh, I mean, you will write slightly differently just because the fluidity of the ink causes you to not have to press as hard as you used to, right? Like with a ballpoint, yeah. you typically press a little harder to get the ball rolling and all that and really get the, because you've got to have get the ball rolling, the moment, get the ball literally rolling, right? Fountain pens, you don't need to do that. Basically, as long yeah. as you just touch the tip, you get instantly so you just start to press less yeah. um but no i wouldn't i wouldn't i'm not that i can remember but i've been writing writing off and on with the fountain pen now for decades. okay now, now i make i think i want to get mine out uh play with it immediately um, i also feel a little better because there's a little less plastic waste in the world because of this right because you just buy the inkwell you just stick the pen in it you have the they have um fountain pens have a bladder that you can get where it literally it's just an empty cartridge that you just turn the back on and it causes a plunger to come up and suction just will pull ink in. And oh, that so way... you, you just get like a jar of ink and fill it up. Yep. Neato. Yeah. I, I, I did have a, a couple uh, glass pens. My wife gave me many years ago mm -hmm. that had, um, that were, uh, they were not fountain pens. They were just, they were uh, blown glass or I guess they weren't blown. They were pulled glass Yeah. and they had like these little cuts in them that, were twisted so that you could uh, dip them in an inkwell, yeah. and it would suck up the ink, and then you could write with them, and that was fun. Except for they, they, you know, they didn't 
write for very long before they ran out of ink. Yeah. Um, thank goodness for the bladders, right? Or the ink cartridges for fountain yeah. pens or outside. Yeah. I'd never be able to put up with this. If I had to constantly dip back into the ink well to get more ink into the nib to write some more. Oh, no, no way. No way I could keep up with that. Th- with, with this, it's easy enough to get more ink. So, well, I want to, I, we went kind of went past the gratitude journal. Can can you tell me a little bit more about that? What's that? Yeah. Um, so it's one of those things where if you're one of these people like me, where it's very easy to end up accidentally focusing on the negative, right? Like what went wrong with your day when you yeah. reflect on it or like, oh, this could have gone better or whatever. A gratitude journal is basically a way to just force you to think about what went well. Right. So it's like, what, what three, what three things do you think went well today? Like, okay. and then what, th- name a couple things that have just got, that are just going well in your overall life. Right. Just kind of forcing you to recognize what you should be thankful for versus focusing on the negative you have. Right. As an example, I've got a couple of medical non-life threatening, just to be clear, things like pulled muscles and like little RSI on my thumb that I'm dealing with that kind of stuff. And so it's very easy to just think about that because it's a little more in your face when it's like constant little pains and whatever. But then when you stop and think about it, it's like, that is minor compared to what some people in this world are going through right now. Whether it's locally here in Vancouver or you think about what what people are having to go through in Ukraine. I mean, like you can run the gamut from just, just having to put up with horrible stuff right now compared to me just having a bit of pain in my thumb right now. And so it's just the gratitude journal. And actually it's been shown scientifically in psych in um, psych studies to actually help people feel better and have a more positive outlook because it forces you to acknowledge the state of your life, which is typically as for us in our current situations, I, without speaking for you specifically, pretty good. And just kind yeah. of making you just reflect on what you do have in your life and what is going well. And so, yeah, so I just, and is, do you have, do you have set, times that you set days that you do this or is it just end up being approximately about every two to three times a week or something yeah it's basically it's just whenever i go to bed and i'm not dead exhausted and i just have less than five minutes i mean it doesn't take very long you set the i just sit there pull out my fountain pen and just go like all right let's just think real quick what's gone well what hasn't it takes a couple minutes just as long as i'm not dead exhausted and i just sit there and have the time to just kind of do it i do it right in bed too like i get in bed it's by on my bedside table. I just grab it I just write it and put it down. Um, hopefully I also have time to do a bit of reading and then yeah, go to sleep. That's cool. I, yeah. I think I might try that. Um, yeah, I will what, say it turned on uh, one of my reports to it recently and they've said that it's helped them a lot too. Cause they're, they're going through a medical thing and they were just like, yeah, you know, I, it really helped me put everything in perspective and just kind of just feel better about my plight in the world as it were. And just, yeah, just, as I said, just kind of forces you just to think about the, the good things to kind of help push back the negative thoughts you might be having about just like, yeah, that thing didn't go well today. It's like, yeah, but you know what? Grand scheme of things. So what? When, what, um, what are you currently reading? Uh, right now I'm reading born a crime by Trevor Noah. Uh, it's not a new book at this point, but my wife read it years ago and absolutely loved it. And, uh, I have multiple book series that I'm reading and I try to break up reading the books in any of these series with a book, not from any of these series to kind of just get a bit of variety. Uh, So I had just finished the next book in the um, Murderbot diaries. Uh, Murderbot. That sounds great. I don't know any of these. Oh, it's fantastic. Uh, So it's a sci-fi uh, book series by Martha Wells. Uh, what's really good about the series is it's mostly novellas. So they're like under 200 pages. Oh, nice. Cause I read so slow. Uh, yeah. So yeah, I'm a very slow reader myself and these books engage me enough and are short enough that I can read an entire one in a day if I'm not careful, which is great, but it also means, damn it, I got through it too fast. And I want more. Um, <laughs> luckily if you start now, she's, uh, I think book, I think there's now five books now. And I think the sixth is coming out later this year. Uh, and actually nice. some of them have now gotten book length, uh, but I absolutely love it. It's, it's without spoiling it, but basically there there's something called Murderbot um, that is basically kind of, it's not quite a cyborg kind of thing that is sentient and kind of 
breaks free of its uh, controls, but doesn't tell anyone because it's too busy trying to just not get caught so it can enjoy watching uh, its version of telenovelas and just trying to live life and just whatever. <laughs> but it's extremely sarcastic too about always talking about the stupidity of human beings and the stupid things they do and put themselves situations they put themselves in because its whole job is to yeah. keep people alive. Um, I love it. it. It totally fits my uh, humor. So I'll have to try it. So I, I got, was it uh, hungry for some sci-fi? Mm-hmm. Um, so I went and I was just a couple, read a, started a couple books that I would, wasn't really enjoying. Uh, so I went back and uh, instead of rereading um, Stranger in a Strange Land, I listened to it as a book on tape, oh, and it's it's still a fun book, but it's it doesn't date well. It doesn't. I don't think it's mm, aged well. I mean, bad. there's a lot of great stuff in it still, but it's uh, there's a lot of sexism in it that is just hard to take in the in the modern age. But you know, yeah, uh, yeah. Well, I also wasn't a voracious reader as a kid. Um, I don't know why, honestly. I mean, my my mom was a school teacher, and I mean, I, like I was I was around books, but it was I, I don't think I grew up around. I didn't see parents reading in bed constantly as a kid, so it just mm. wasn't a habit I ever picked up. And then I got older, and it's like, man, these, everyone just keeps talking about. Um, by the way, the whole man comment, you can tell I grew up in Southern California. I keep trying not to do that to be a bit more gender neutral in life. And it's a freak. It's a really hard habit to break. Anyway, um, I just like, geez, everyone keeps referencing these like canonical books that they grew up with. Right. Like like Dune is a good example. I never read Dune until like before the movie from Denis Villeneuve came out. Right. So, but Andrea, my wife, had read it and loved it and talked about it and multiple other people and all the references to it. So it's like, all right, fine. I'm going to find sit down and read it. And it was amazing. And I absolutely loved it. And I have a stupid $200 copy of it because it was such a wonderful book. And I want to be able to lend a beautiful copy to anyone who I know, whoever wants to read the book. It's huge though. 500 something pages. The, the largest book or series of books I read were probably Harry Potter books. I'm actually reading those now too. Like I, I have multiple, I have, I'm reading the Harry Potter series uh, because my wife read them as uh, when she was younger we have an eight year, eight and a half year age difference. So there are certain things that she got into that I just, I didn't quite get into because like Potter books happened while I was like in high school. So I just didn't latch on like she did when she was younger. So I'm coming back around to those. Um, like I'm reading Harry Potter. I'm reading the Dune series. I'm reading the Murderbot series. Uh, I've read book one of Old Man Old Man's War and love that enough. That I'm going to start reading book two. Um, so yeah, I've got a couple series going. Oh, and I haven't. I've read The Hobbit and I have not started Lord of the Rings yet. But I got a nice copy of that. Well, don't you don't spoil it by watching the movies. I guess. I <laughs> <laughs> Actually, so funny enough, I prefer watching movies first and then reading the book. <laughs> Uh, cause I actually really, I enjoy films a lot. So like you were asking yeah. what I do on my spare time, right? Like we go for walks and stuff, but, uh, Andrew and I like watching movies and bespoke television, like, like Sopranos, uh, mad band huh. kind of TV, okay. um, or, or certain comedies, uh, lot, plenty of British stuff actually. Um, and it led to me seeing a lot of sh- movies of books that I wanted to read well before I read the books and what it caused me to do is actually I end up appreciating the books more because it's usually one of those things where people go oh the movie's never as good as the book blah blah, blah. well okay then I'll re- watch the movie first enjoy the movie as a movie and then I get to read yeah. the more detailed huh? back backstory right like I'm getting that with Harry Potter right like oh, yeah there's a lot more in the books right exactly so I get yeah. to have the reverse reaction I get to have enjoyed the films as cinema and then I get to go re- back, read the books and go, oh, that's interesting that they left that out. Oh, oh, oh this little detail that they kind of hinted at, but didn't have enough time to get into. Right. So I actually enjoy the books more because I don't have to expend mental energy on certain things. I already have a mental picture for what, who, how I want to choose to view these characters. Yeah. But I get the benefit of all that extra detail. I get to appreciate the movies even more if they're done well or why something was the way it was or go. Oh, yeah. yeah no, so I my, totally my wife and I, I like, had what had read like the first four or five Harry Potter books before mm-hmm. or whatever, however many there were before the first movie came out. Yeah. Um, the downside of that is n- neither of us had any idea how to pronounce Hermione. Uh, <laughs> um, Cause it's not really a name you run into. That yeah, way. no, not at all. Um, but 
Um, yeah, it's always funny to to find those words like you or your, you think you know how to pronounce or your spouse thinks they know how to pronounce that you've yeah. both only ever read in print and then you yeah. find out from each other, oh, you thought it was pronounced that way in your head? Like, <laughs> by the way, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if you're one of these people who reads to themselves in their head because that's how I read and I think partially why I read so slowly. Yeah, um, definitely. Yeah. Uh, I've met people who don't. So it's one of those interesting things where you talk to people and realize what goes on in your brain is not the same as everybody else's. Um, and, but yeah, we have this occasionally, which is like, especially cause right. Having grown up in the States, I pronounce things typically more like an American than, and she'll pronounce things as a Canadian finding where the mm. little not cross section is, but yeah, it's still fun to go like, oh, that's how you thought it'd be pronounced. I thought it'd be this. And we had to then look it up and find out who's right or who's wrong and start doing it the proper way, as it were. That first conference that I spoke at, um, you said we ran into each other at the poster talk and that like jogged a bit of my brain. And I'm like, I think at that time we talked a little bit about tea and we both have like the same teapot. Tea house? Or, or are we talking about the Breville? Breville, the one, or at least at the time, uh, yeah. the one that like, you know, you can set the temperatures and stuff like that. So yeah, yeah. I just had some Earl Grey today made with that, but I, I like it on the, the oolong setting. I think there's one that's 195 degrees. I, I like that better for black peas than 212. Oh, interesting. Um, well, I, I, I'll probably not tell Andrea that. So, uh, Andrea worked at a tea shop in university, uh, it's not here anymore. Um, but she, having worked in a tea shop plus um, having English grandparents uh, led to her getting steeped into the whole world of tea and being very into it to the point that um, for anyone who ever visits our home, uh, we have an entire cupboard in our kitchen dedicated to nothing but tea. And I mean a cupboard. It's literally three shelves full from oh, wow. individual little bags of like 100 grams all the way up to one kilogram bags of some of our favorite teas. And um, the tea maker, uh, assuming Brian and I are talking about the same one, Breville makes one called literally called the tea maker, which is as an engineer kind of cool when you see it, it's got buttons for water temp, but um, it has a metal basket in it and a magnetic railing in the back of the pot. And what you do is you put your tea in the metal basket, put the top on and it's, magnetically stick it at the top of the rail, sit your tea. And then there's a temperature sensor that starts boiling the water until it hits the right temp. And then the medic railing will magnetically lower the basket into the water, kick off the timer for the steep. And then when the timer goes up, raise the basket back out beep. And then that way, you know, your tea has been brewed at the proper temperature with the proper amount of steeping. And the pot is well insulated enough that you actually don't have to rush over to get to it either because it's just going to stay nice and warm for a surprisingly long amount of time. Yeah, one of my big pet peeves is going to tea, uh, like going out to tea, uh, mm -hmm. and and they um, uh, and having people just pour the the water in the teapot, uh, and I'm like, well, it's it's only going to be perfect for like that first pour, yep. and then every other cup is going to be too strong. Um, you, yeah, you can tell how serious the tea place is based on whether or not they bring you the pot with the tea in it or whether they bring you the leaves in a basket over the over your teacup and they give you the hot water to pour yourself <laughs> right because uh, as you said if they bring it to you already steeping in it they've already started the timer for you and it, they didn't tell you when they started the timer right yeah, yeah. so unless they or immediately tell you when they put it down oh pour this in about two minutes because they can tell roughly when they started it in the back well, sometimes that, they'll give right. you the little uh, the little timer thing, the little yeah. tea timer. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, you can always tell when when we go to we always have to go to tea shops and go to um, tea rooms. Yeah, uh, when we travel, and it's one of those things where it's like you can always just tell it's like, oh yeah, here here's your pot with your tea. Like, when yeah. did you put this in? Like, I don't know how long you've been steeping this back there. Did you rush and bring it to me immediately, or did you get sidetracked? Like, has it been sitting here for a minute already, or is it ten seconds or? So we always we always have fun, but we're usually disappointed. But uh, even the bad tea shops are good stories usually. So. Yeah, uh, we've actually been in tea shops where and where Andrea has school uh, not tea shops tea rooms actually in high end restaurants where Andrea uh, high end hotels at least, and she has schooled them on how to properly do tea, and they actually offered her a job once. So it was like, 
we, are you looking for a job? We could totally use help. And the manager for the team room came over. was like, uh, you should know this. If I'm the one having to randomly come in and explain to you how to properly brew and serve tea, I don't want to work here because you've already started from a low position. My wife worked at a tea shop once and she, for her um, uh, job interview, she brought her portfolio in because she had like a portfolio of the mm-hmm. different teas, like teas that she's done at parties and stuff. And they're like, you're the only person that brought a portfolio. So yes, you're hired. <laughs> um, nice. So next, uh, next time we're up in Canada, we, um, my wife and I should uh, try to get you and uh, Andrea to take us out to tea or something. It'd be fun. Definitely. You're going to multiple good tea shops. Thanks so much for your time, Brett. And I think I've, I've, I've gotten to know you a little bit better and I hope everybody else has as well. Thanks, Brian. Thanks for listening to Python people. Show notes are at pythonpeople.fm. Please subscribe to the show. You can also follow the show on Mastodon, follow at Python people or at Brian Aachen, both on fostodon.org. This episode is brought to you by the complete PyTest course. PyTest is powerful and easy to get started. You owe it to yourself and your team to write clean, easy to read tests to save you time now and during maintenance. The complete PyTest course will get you started with good habits and teach you some cool tricks when you need them later on. Even if you already use PyTest, why not level up? With a 30-day refund policy, you've got nothing to lose. Check it out at courses.pythontest.com. Thank you, Patreon supporters. You rock. Links to the course and Patreon signup are in the show notes. If you'd like to be on the show or know someone you'd like me to interview, reach out to me on Mastodon. I'm at Brian Aachen at Fostodon.org. That's all for now. Thanks.